I'm Tammy Vendange, your host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Frances Crimmins, the CEO of YWCA Canberra. Today, we're going to chat about the good, bad, and hard things about running a charity. Francis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Tammy. We we actually met a few years ago when I was the CEO at RSPCA ACT. You were the CEO of YWCA at that time as well. Yes. And I remember we had this long conversation about feminism, which I know this is the the show is about more your organization, but I'd like to start with that first. Like, what, what's your definition of that that um, feminism? Look, this is a question I get asked a lot because. We start describing YWCA Canberra as a proud feminist organisation and that goes straight to our purpose. So for us, a feminist organisation and for me identifying as a feminist is that we are our, our purpose. We are in pursuit of achieving gender equality economically, socially and culturally. We want to see women and non-gender all non-binary people have equal access to all aspects of our society and that's what being a proud feminist organization means and that means that men can also be feminists. Mm. So it's equal opportunity though I, I think that's probably where the word starts to to become more negative in some people's minds when they think it's it's not equal it's more empowerment or um, more power on one, one gender versus the other. Yeah, no, it's not about more. It's about equal. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, that's how that's part of being part of a global movement. And, you know, I do wear very proudly the feminist brand. People identify me. I had somebody say that recently. I even have a T-shirt that when I walk in the room that says feminist. So it's something that we all are very proud of at YWCA. And you will see all of this, a lot of the staff, a lot of people who come to work for us identify with being feminists, but it's because they do hold that genuine passion for seeing, um, as I said, women um, have equal access to everything that our community holds here in Canberra and the region and then across Australia and globally. Mm. So tell us how that equates to the services you deliver um, locally. So YWCA Canberra's actually operated here for 93 years, wow. so clearly well below <laughs> my, my lifetime. And I always acknowledge the shoulders of the women who've come before me that I stand on. And YWCA's are a grassroots community movement, and it is about local women providing services to women and girls in their community. So when YWCA Canberra was established, um, they were actually asked by the our government when they were building Canberra in the 1920s to come and provide services for all of the um, single young women moving to Canberra to support the growth of the government, the seat of our federal parliament here in Canberra. And so from there, that was when the women who came to establish started to set up all of those key portfolios across cultural, economic and social participation for young women moving to Canberra. So some of the first programs were housing because women needed safe shelter. I think for those people that are not familiar with how Canberra was mm -hmm. first established, it might be worth just mentioning that briefly so people realize why did they need these extra things? Yes, yeah, so for those people who aren't aware of the establishment of Canberra, it was a site selected to be the seat of our federal government. 
and it was decided to be in between Sydney and Melbourne. And they embarked on this journey um, at our federation and so there wasn't, there was the, uh, obviously the First Nations people who were here um, for thousands and thousands of years. So I do want to acknowledge that <laughs> that, that point. Um, but they, they essentially came and Canberra um, and started to build and bring population here to support the building of the national of, of the capital of Canberra and then bring the workforce to run government. So there wasn't any social services at the time. And in the 1920s, that's what they determined they needed. And so some of the first programs you'll see us offering are providing a dance hall, providing sports and recreation activities. Um, but they were always pushing the boundary even then as feminists. There's beautiful photos of young women doing fencing classes and karate. I saw a great historic clip from the 1960s of ABC of this reporter showing these young women learning karate, look at this different... Yeah. So they were always pushing gender boundaries on what it was perceived young women should be doing um, and that's the legacy that we stand on today. Oh, beautiful. I, I think for those of us who are even local, we probably don't realise how far that history goes. For the services that were provided back then compared to the services you're providing now, what are the major differences? So we started, the major differences was in the 1960s, apart from social, recreational and housing needs, was they recognised a support for women who wanted to return to the workplace after having children. And that's when they started running programs to provide children's, I guess what we would call early childcare. Um, so those women established a family daycare network. They established the first, they called them stay-at-home camps and Right in the middle of our city here in Canberra, there's still a building standing that most people who visit Canberra would know it from the Great Irish Pub there. But that was where all these activities happen and there's stories from the 1960s of something like 2,000 children descending to the middle of Civic to come for stay-at-home camps for the day. Um, so their, their um, mothers could return to the workplace. So that's something, again, that initial response to local community needs. And now Children's Services is a, a cornerstone of our work. 60% of our revenue comes from Children's Services. And we care for over 3,000 children a week here in the ACT. Wow. Okay. So 60% of your revenue, what's the other 40%? So we have 17% from community services. We're in a unique position, actually, I should um, tell people in that we, have, um, we don't need government funding to operate. So only 17% of our funding comes from government, primarily ACT government and some from the federal government. So that does give us a lot of scope to be bold in our advocacy and in our calls for more support for the community. Um, because we're not um, reliant on government funding. So that does give you freedom as a not-for-profit leader. Um, if you're concerned about funding and possible implications, if you are kind of bold in, in, in speaking out um, in your community. I've experienced that myself where if you are getting too much government funding and you're also trying to do advocacy work, 
it's very hard to speak against government when you know that's your your the fan the the hand that's feeding you, right? Correct. It's really challenging with that. So 17% from government sources, 60% from childcare. What's the other 30 or yep. 23%? So we run a registered training organisation and that supports um, the professional development of all of our staff who work in children's services. But we also have a whole women's leadership suite called She Leads. So we run a diploma in leadership and management. We run conferences. We just held our eighth She Lead conference in uh, that was held in Canberra two weeks ago, um, which was, again, another success. We run leadership programs for young women in schools, She Leads and She Hides, she, she Leads College. And we were really proud this year to run our first They Lead conference for uh, young people who identify in the LGBTIQ community. Um, and that's something that we'll continue to pursue as, uh, you know, our notion of gender starts to evolve in the community. So that's a huge part of our work. Plus we also um, have um, have some small smaller social enterprises um, in the housing, that housing stock that we own. Um, we're a community housing provider. We have a charitable property management service called Rentwell. Um, so we've got a few social enterprises under that that make up that last part of our income stream. So such a diverse network of services. You as the CEO have a lot of moving parts at any given time. How does that work for you? Like, How do you spend your time managing the various parts? Look, that's um, s some days. I wish I had a few extra hours. But for me, the key and advice to anybody is you have to have a strong executive team and senior management team, but you also have to have a board that supports you in being successful. So there's a few pillars of operating a complex organisation. Um, you know, we have 350 staff. Everything we do is still on our purpose of girls and women thriving, but without a strong executive team, without a really good corporate governance structure, um, because you can't do everything as a CEO you need to identify and be able to delegate and trust then that your executive team and their teams will run with the operational management across such a diverse mm. business. Well, it's proof that you must have an amazing team. How, how do you choose your executive team? Because obviously these are the people that are the keys to making this work. Look, I think um, I think we all have to look at traditional recruitment, um, how we've recruited in the past. And to be honest, the last few executive people I have met and recruited have actually been through personal uh, referrals and my networks. I think it's really important that you get a cultural fit and people say, well, what does, what does that mean? People who are passionate about your purpose from day one, but also people that have the skills and complement the skills of people in your team. So the last three people I've appointed are uh, two executive roles have been through informal networks and me then approaching them and having a conversation rather than a formal interview, then extending that to a few of the other executive team to meet, having more conversations, and that is how I've recruited the executive team. If everybody can follow that model, then I think recruiters would go out of business because that's always a preference, right, is, is a referral. Do you, do you build your organizational charts around your leadership team? Yes, I, I would I would say that with a resounding yes. We have just done a new org organizational restructure 
And that's based on, um, a, we'll probably get to this, that's based on, I had the opportunity to take a 12-week sabbatical at the start of the year. And we backfilled with a step-up leader and acting CEO. We do not want to lose the skill set that amazing person gained. Based on board consideration and the outcomes of that program, we have restructured to make that person a chief operating officer because why wouldn't you continue their leadership journey? Especially if you like what they're doing, right? Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Making a significant leadership contribution to the organisation. Um, and so that's that's where I think boards and CEOs need to be open and being agile in their structure. Yeah. I, too many times I'll get a, a, a client that will say, well, you know, we want one of these, one of these, one of these. It's like, but what are the strengths and weaknesses of your existing team, right? It, it, it's just not practical in these, especially smaller organizations, to be able to say that you can just pop a certain person into those roles. So to hear another executive talk about building a team around around or the org structure around the team yes. makes a lot of sense to me. I want to go ahead and, and talk about that, um, the program you've, you've done. But before we do that, uh, how did you get involved in the community sector? Look, that's I've got a I've got a very interesting background, and I probably uh, I used to say I was an accidental CEO, but I'm not actually. I had I, I'm I'm determined to be you know to be a leader was my goal. So I um, hadn't worked in the community sector before I joined YWCA, um, and the reason I joined them was because of that feminist pull. When I saw the skill set that I had and saw that they were looking for that skill set, I, I wanted to contribute that to this organisation. I've been there for 12 years. But previously before that, my job just before that was in private healthcare, uh, working for the little company Mary for um, five years, um, doing their human resources training quality risk. And before that, I worked um, in hotel management. I used to work in hospitality management. Then I um, moved overseas and worked in that area for a bit and came back and then taught hotel management when we had a hotel management school here in the ACT. So I've got a non-traditional background into the community sector, but always love running businesses. And it's an innate strength, really good with managing businesses. For-purpose organisations need to make a surplus. Yeah. <laughs> And that's a key point that, you know, if, you, if you're going to set up as a CEO, we need to, people think that you're a not-for-profit means money doesn't matter. Money matters. And COVID taught us why money matters oh, <laughs> when the sure. going got tough. So so having that, I guess, business acumen and seeing the, uh, the job ad and what they were looking for, a very, very smart board, had a 15-year strategy and wanted to diversify income and build social enterprise streams. And so that's how I came to join the community community sector. Did you start off in the CEO role? No, I didn't. I actually uh, started off in a in a job ad, in a position that was um, an executive director role of um, development and strategic implementation. It was probably closer to a chief operating officer role. Um, just had a rather different name at the time. And I did that for three years. So I had the luxury of working on all of the corporate back of house systems before I applied for the CEO role, which really, um, you know, if you have the opportunity to do that, most CEO roles, ha CEOs have to commence and start on that back of house work. I had had the, um, the fortunate opportunity to have three years doing that before I took on the CEO role. 
I've had this conversation before with people that have moved into the CEO role. And not every person wants to do that once they see what that entails. Mm. Was was the transition um, difficult for you to go from back of house to front of house? Look, the big learning for me was advocacy and that public policy and being the, I guess, the face of the organisation. And again, I think I, I jumped at that opportunity um, because I identify so closely in my brand as a feminist and that's the, that's the work that we do at YWCA. So the board supported me and allowed me to do some media training, did my advocacy boot camp training, but also, again, it's not just about the CEO, it's the people, as we've already mentioned, uh, the experts who work in that area behind you. Um, you need to have you know, expertise across all of those other areas. So that was probably the biggest learning um, for me and and understanding that I needed to step back from wanting perfection, my utopia, my feminist utopia to progress. That's a big learning that I think um, when I see new CEOs uh, jump into that seat and you're so passionate about your purpose that you just want to smash down everything to get there. Possibly my advice now would be take time, build networks, build the trust with government and other stakeholders and let them know that you're a trusted advisor, that you'll give them frank and fearless advice, but in a respectful manner, and that you've got to understand the mechanisms of government as well in order to get that change. Mm. I think it'd be worth talking about something your experience locally just recently. It's definitely been in the news. And and because you mentioned policy and advocacy, I, I don't think that people in the private sector really understand how much work is being done in that space when you're in a CEO role in particular, especially in a place like Canberra where the, the state government is also the delivering arm. So yes. the territory is both the, the policymakers and the council in terms of delivery. Let's, let's talk about this housing in Ainsley because I think it's very topical and a good example mm -hmm. for what you might have had to do in the background. And you told me you didn't mind talking about this subject. Very happy to talk about this subject and really um, happy to share my, you know, th this was a, this has been a really challenging project for us because I thought, like you do when you're passionate about your purpose, providing houses for older women experiencing homelessness and women who've experienced domestic violence, I came into this going, everybody wants this in Canberra. Who wouldn't share this vision of ours? And I have to say, it, it did knock me back when I found out that actually not everybody <laughs> shares the same vision um, with you. And so it really did take uh, a moment to regroup and understand that we were going to have a small but very loud opposition to this project. And so the position we took through this was, well, we want to work with you and understand what you oppose. And I think there comes a time when you realise that for some positions, you might never reach agreement. So how do you move forward? And how do you let those people who have strong opposition um, progress with dignity? Mm. Yeah. So let's just provide a little background for those that yes. are not familiar with this, this particular subject. Um, so the YWCA has some land. Yes, we have land that we've owned for three decades and, and it has buildings on it at the moment. And it's in a very nice part of the city, which the houses around it are millions of dollars. So 
maybe we, we need to go back into that context a little bit. And the, and the people that were opposing it were, I assume, people within the neighborhood that didn't want this kind of housing there. Yes, correct. So it's a it's a really large block of land, parcel of land, that um, was purchased um, three decades ago. And we've used it to run youth centres. We've used it for um, community, for women's group. We've used it for our um, children's play groups. We've coordinated community activities from that site. And based on our uh, own advocacy and, and experience of seeing the huge number of particularly older women falling into homelessness across the country, um, we decided that the best use of our one block of land we own in Canberra was to actually build homes for this this for this client group that we could see there was a big gap. And that's on the basis that while we give advice and, and talk to government about this, we also want to be part of the solution and put our money where our mouth is, not just tell government to keep funding funding these housing builds. So the board determined that we would redevelop this block of land to put 10 homes uh, 10 units on it, um, two two-bedrooms for women and children who'd experienced violence and eight one-bedroom units that uh, women could live as long as they wanted to. And it's a social rent model, which means they pay 25% of their income. So when we took this to community, we had um, initially support and then some of the people who weren't able to attend because we hit it right at COVID and then we all had to go into lockdown and we were trying to communicate um, not in person. We started to hear and um, that there were some people who didn't want it who who lived on the same street. They had they actually formed their own residence community association and once we received approval from the government to build, they took us to the ACT court system and had that decision overturned. So as I said, it was a big learning for me that not everybody shares my vision <laughs> and the board's vision um, and how we overcame that and, and going back to community and modifying. We needed the uh, government to intervene and approve that to stop those third parties party appeals. So there is still people who don't want this housing to be built on their street um, and so that's the, that's what that's what our hope is now. How do we reconcile with those people? Because we now have the green light to build. There isn't another avenue for people to stop this build. Um, so it's been a journey. <laughs> well, let's talk about that relationship you have with government because clearly government didn't have to support this. No, they didn't. But they chose to. So how did that work from a relationship and an advocacy point of view? So we were obviously doing... You know, we've, we obviously do a lot of advocacy on housing and homeless issues that um, focus on women. So we had previously advised the ACT government and we needed support from the ACT government to secure Commonwealth government funding, which will fund 50% of this build. The ACT government also provided us with a grant to do the concept work on, on this. So the ACT government were a small financial contributor to the project. And we had to use a lot of political capital, talking to all arms of government, um, to have them understand the project, understand it was social housing, and that we were working in partnership. We'll never replace them as the public housing provider, but it was our contribution to the social housing model. Um, that, that was many years of work and a lot of political capital in... Um, in, in getting their support 
uh, to call in this project. That decision was theirs alone, however. From my perspective, I think the ACT government um, possibly were concerned that if they couldn't get Commonwealth, that this could end other Commonwealth government funding into the ACT. So they also had to probably demonstrate to the Commonwealth government that if you do provide our local community services with money, they will be able to build in the ACT. So I think that was probably the big picture lens from the ACT government um, and why they felt they needed to um, step in. Understanding what the government needs are as well, though, was just as important for you oh, to be able to get this across the line. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 delivering um, and working, you know, working with the government. So we will obviously be working with the central intake homeless um, provider here to make sure that the people who live in these homes are the most at need mm. as well. Um, but we do want them to be um, permanent homes for the women who live there. And we hope over time, um, as I said, a lot of the community do support it, um, that that people will just realise, as I say, that these are women with just conventional lives. There's really nothing to be afraid of. Um, and that diversity that you get in your community is something that will bring a strength. It, it's a great example of how you can work with government, build those relationships over time, and then when you really do need to ask for that additional help to get across the line that that that's already been built. Yeah, absolutely. And being that trusted um, community provider, but also we've got a history of delivering. Mm. Yeah, well, that makes a big difference, <laughs> it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You actually have to deliver what you say you're going to do. Um, and, and I think overall, um, and again, it's that perseverance. So when we got when we had to relook at the design, it was just going back and saying, okay, what can we do? Mm. And just persevering. Sometimes you know, keep big projects take a long time and you've got to stay the distance. But you've also got to support your staff to stay the distance. I can tell you the day we had our first development application knocked back by the ACT courts was a really sad day for mm. our staff. They had so much invested. They were so passionate about this. And the whole, you could feel the whole weight of the whole staff across, even if you weren't working in housing. And so just to demonstrate, to get back up, and I think that's a key lesson, how do mm. you get back up and how do you walk in the door the next day and say, right, we're going to regroup and we're going to have another go at this. I think that's something that um, as a CEO you will have times where you, you've got, things don't go to plan. It's how you get back up and how you continue to lead your team moving forward when you have those, you know, not so great days. <laughs> Look, the leadership challenges are probably endless, especially in an organization as large as yours. What are some of the biggest operational challenges that you have other than this particular housing project? I think today it's staffing. I think across the country we've got a staffing crisis. Um, we're working in community services and children's services. Um, we've been fortunate to see the equal remuneration order for the community services side of our business. But sadly, the people who work in childcare, those um, wonderful staff haven't been as valued by the, uh, their, their work hasn't been as valued by the community, which always astounds me because they are caring and providing education for your children. But unfortunately, the remuneration doesn't reflect that across the sector and the Children's Services Modern Award is one of the lowest based awards we have in this country. So that's the biggest um, challenge, I think, for all of us. And that's the same in disability care. 
in aged care. And I, I kind of wonder what does it say about our society, the roles that we entrust people to be the carers of our most vulnerable people, and yet we remunerate them at the lowest level, the lowest professional level in this country. So for those people that are outside of Australia, the awards is basically minimum wages, but based on sector and, and role. Do you guys have enterprise bargaining agreements in yeah, place? Yeah, we have an enterprise yeah. agreement and we pay above award, but you can only push that so far because the fees are paid by families. True. And coming out of COVID, not just in Australia, but globally, We've got huge surge in cost of living and we can only ask parents to carry the burden of increased fees. Mm. Um, you, you can't keep putting that on parents. So that's, again, going back to your policy and advocacy, bringing government around, having them understand the value of the early learning sector, but also to the economy because we still see women opting out more than men to be the primary carers. And that's the work that's been done uh, both by our organisation but collectively as a sector to have the federal government commit to investing in early learning, just like they've announced in aged care. We still need to see the same investment in um, disability workers. But we do need the government to step in at this point to lift that wage those wages, and we will be supporting our staff. There's going to be a national strike day on ed early education day in September, and I'll proudly stand with them at Parliament House. It's so important that we pay people for the work they do. It's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because the here in Australia, childcare can be supplemented by government depending mm. on how much their parents make. It's not the case in other countries, yes, like America, where the where that's not a government benefit. Um, same thing with disability. Our our government does step in here in Australia with supporting the services that um, individuals that may need within the sector, where it may not be as readily available in other countries. the The balance between, as you say, the um, what individual families need to pay so that people can work mm -hmm. versus what government supports is that such a delicate balance, isn't it? Because it, ultimately the taxpayers pay for these services too. Oh, they do. And I think um, we are very fortunate in Australia that we did have commitments from both um, sides of parliament on this issue, different policy settings, but there was a recognition of the need for federal government investment into the early learning sector. Um, and in terms of, I guess, going back to what can you do as a CEO, there are other things you can do within your own work's terms and conditions um, to support this sector because burnout, COVID has been, had a real impact on wellbeing of staff and that burnout. And these are the sectors that while all of us were working from home, they couldn't work from home. When we were in complete lockdown, they were still showing up every day pre-vaccinations being available, which does, you know, that, that level of well-being, what if I caught COVID during my job caring for children? Um, so there was all, with all of that pressure, so we, um, we offer all of our staff condensed working rosters. Every role at YWCA can be part-time. And so we've done some really innovative stuff with rosters. So, um, when people think, how can you give flexibility yeah, to please a frontline front role? So you, you can actually um, allow people to work shorter or longer days 
um, and then have a fourth day off. <laughs> so, you know, we looked at our, looked at the early learning sector and most people, most people take Friday off and that was our lowest day of occupancy. And we're like, what if we could offer people to work longer days at the first four days of the week and then have this roster where you get every second Friday off? <laughs> Because you need people to have time to rest and recuperate. So that's just some of the things. And we've asked staff if that's what they want. It's the first step, actually ask them, are you interested in this? And so a lot of our staff have shifted to this nine-day fortnight. Um, Or if they actually just want to work part-time, we will um, allow any of our staff to work part-time, whether that's two two days, three or four. What what other things have you put in place to, to help with this? Um, So we try to support where we can with professional development and actually putting them in our own She Leads programs, allowing them access to go to our conferences. Um, One of the other things that we are strong advocates for and we're very pleased to see, we've offered paid domestic violence leave to our employees for over five years. And so to get that policy win um, and when people say, well, what benefit is that got it's a leave that sadly is used and accessed and to provide those safe pathways our workforce is 85 percent women uh, for our staff to access paid domestic violence leave was a really big step for those staff because we don't want to lose them and they need their they need their income so that was a really um i guess something that we were really proud of that we recognised the need and and moved early on. As I said, it's possibly even longer than five years. I think we introduced it even longer ago. It's probably a policy that that you're probably one of the first to implement something like that, it sounds like. Yeah, and we were doing a lot of advocacy and trying to get other organisations and um, like the local business chamber to adopt our policy position and support people on what does it mean and how do you implement a policy like that. And it's just, again, recognising and trying to support that um, the pressures of life, um, you know, can impact your work and how do we get that balance right for people. It's interesting when we talk about something as simple as leave, how it makes a difference. Obviously, in your space, you have very good visibility to this need. Mm. It doesn't have to be just in that space, though, because I was when I was at RSPCA, we actually had bereavement leave for animals. Oh, so if if a staff member lost an animal because of the nature of our mission, we would actually allow them to take some leave for that because we knew the impact of losing a pet was like losing a child sometimes. So it's interesting how you can be very flexible in something as simple as leave and it can make a huge difference and can be completely aligned with your mission. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we we should do that too. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, well, there's there's another (laughs) idea. I'm sure your your staff will love that opportunity to to spend some time, you know, thinking about a lost pet too. I want to talk specifically about the social impact leadership sabbatical you just took. It was something when you walked in the door and we just had a a nice little brief conversation before this interview, you were so fired up after coming back from this. Can you please just, first of all, tell us about the program? And then I would love to know more about the insights that Mm. you've had from it. So a a few years ago, Social Impact Australia works out of University of New South Wales and the CEO of that program, um, who's so passionate about the leaders of for-purpose organisations and CEOs, saw that there was plenty of philanthropists 
giving money to their charities of choice, but it was all about the frontline service. It was all about, I want to help you care for children. I want to help you, um, you know, build houses. But there was no money going into the investment of the CEOs of who lead these organisations. And I'm sure many of the CEOs who um, you've spoken to say it's really hard to take time out for yourself, for your own development, and to actually put your hand up and say to your own board, can you invest a bit in me? So that pressure was totally removed when um, Social Impact Australia were able to get funding from some of the large philanthropic families and foundations in Australia being the Paul Ramsey Foundation, the Vincent Fairfax Foundation, the Meyer Foundation and the Sydney Meyer Foundation. They've made a decision to invest, I think it's $9 million over five years to put for-purpose leaders through a 12-month leadership program and they're doing it uh, in cohorts. So I was in what they call Cohort 1, which was New South Wales and ACT. So it was clearly a very competitive <laughs> um, I was uh, application process, but it wasn't just me. It was an application from the board, the chair, and it's an investment in each of those organisations' executive team. But it's also about connecting us up and the social leadership across um, our region of people who work in for-purpose organisations. So the program commenced, it's just it's completed for the first cohort um, and they selected 24 CEOs from for-purpose organisations. There's three based in the ACT where I'm from and the rest were from across New South Wales. And so I still remember our first time together. You can imagine 24 individuals who'd seen each other's photos, had heard of each other's work, all kind of, oh, how am I in this group? How did I get selected in this group? Um, but after that first ice-breaking moment and building trust, we now have an amazing support, support mechanism of one another. We have been on an amazing leadership journey together. We've done shared retreats together. We've explored our own leadership. We've explored our organisation's purpose. But the biggest learning for me was the social um, learning about the system's leadership and that we have to work together if we're going to see change on our purpose. You know, our purpose on girls and women thriving and achieving gender equality, our strategic goals of ending gender-based violence, providing housing and, you know, participating in the ending of homelessness, you can't do that on your own. Mm. No organisation can. So working in a systems leadership really opened my eyes to why you need to collaborate, why you need to work in partnership with government. And we got to actually do this in an experiential way. We went out to um, a regional area in New South Wales. We were embedded in that community. We weren't there as consultants. We were there to listen. We were there to talk to young people, to the Indigenous community, to the head of the police force, to the council, to um, people providing com other community services. We were even tasked to go out and meet five people on our own <laughs> and talk to them about what do they need in their, what do they need in their community? What do they need to start recovering from COVID? So it was, it was truly a gift. The 12 weeks sabbatical was a gift of time to then reflect, think, and really explore your own purpose. And I've actually come back going, I'm in the right job. I love the people I work with. And that's really consolidated for me 
uh, why I do what I do. It, it sounds like systems leadership, as you're defining it, is around collaboration. So what kind of insights have you strategically brought out of this that you I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it yet, but yeah. maybe operationally what you might do within your own organization. So we've already started. We had a board planning day just last week and I kind of asked the facilitator and with the chair, shared some of the research we did on this. And we're fairly fortunate at YWCA that we've kind of got our base governance in, you know, is, is quite solid as well as our operational platform, you know, we're very financially sustainable. We've got money to invest. The next piece for us is systems leadership. And so I kind of tasked our board, what would, what would change if my job was to work on our purpose and not our organisation? Oh, interesting. <laughs> and if, if anybody who's in a CRO, just think about that. Think about how much of your time you're working in your organisation on your organisation and occasionally stick your head up and catch up with a peer, other organisations doing similar work. You might have an odd meeting with a government official or a bureaucrat or a politician. What if your job was solely to work on that purpose? What would change? What changes for your your, your executive team and what changes for your board? Mm. So that's the conversation we spent a whole day having having. And it's been really powerful shift in our thinking and where we want to go as an organisation. And if we're true to achieving our purpose, and it's even interesting, ask your board and ask all the executive to write down what's your purpose on a post-it note and see what answers come up because it won't be the same. Mm -hmm. And even though we've been established for years, let's establish that baseline. <laughs> so that's the work that we've commenced on and I think that's that's really reinvigorated everybody to have that common understanding of purpose and if we don't step into the system and start leading there, we'll never see the achievement of gender equality. Mm. I know we. I spoke to Carrie Leeson a few weeks ago, or actually it's probably been a few months ago now, uh, from Lifeline, yes. Canberra, and she had just appointed a general manager, which took nine months to find the right person mm. for that job, for that very purpose, so that she can look out and up and someone else could look down and worry about the day-to-day -day management. Yes. I know um, just speaking with Heidi Prowse recently from uh, MIAT, she has just appointed a deputy recently for a similar. Are you planning on adding a resource to allow you that bandwidth so you can think more strategically? Yes, as I mentioned, the person who was acting CEO, we've moved to a chief operating officer mm -hmm. role, and then we will be replacing that role. So, yes, we are looking at adding... Um, more resources so it can allow me to be more outward focused. But I think part of the question is when you're looking at that systems leadership, a more important question is, is there something we're doing we should stop and are we the right organisation? Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's that's part of the conversation. <laughs> and it's, it's unfortunate, but a lot of people don't start with that question about no. pulling back a little bit. Are you, are you right now in the process of thinking about your service delivery arms. And yes, yes, mm. we are. And I think I think you have to really get the balance right. So, you know, the traditional focus of boards is scale, mm -hmm. scale, grow, grow, grow. But when should you not grow? And when should you say no? And I actually told my board, I found myself for the first time saying no to a government. I'm at capacity, not the right person. I think you should get this person to do that work. And first of all, the board was like, you said no. 
I guess so. I think you really do have, and it's and it's putting it through. What's our purpose? What role should we be playing in the system? And if you're not the right per- organization, give it to the organization that is, because it's those local relationships and those local networks and that area of expertise. If we're going to be true to being part of seeing our purpose achieved, you see organizations do this when it, when they're thinking about it from a budget perspective. Because they can't deliver all services, therefore they're thinking about which services can we afford to deliver. You're in a unique position because, as you say, financially you're okay. So the idea that you would still say no to services that you could deliver but may not f- meet your filter, your yes. new filter, yes, is really interesting to hear because it's not financially driven, is it? No, it's not financially driven mm. at all. If it was financially driven, I would have said yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's actually it, it was a decision made on we are not the best people. It's not, it's going back again, you know, that lens, I keep coming back, what is our purpose? Mm. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of academic research on this, you know, what is mission control? And, you know, when you see, and it's probably some of the largest organisations, are they actually having an impact? What's your theory of change and your purpose? If you're not impacting on it, what's the point of being the biggest? How do you measure success from your point of view in this organisation? Um, I think from the feedback from clients and the outcomes from the people we're here to serve. So putting the person we're serving at the centre of that and if they say that we haven't met or made an impact on them, then we haven't achieved mm. what we've set out to do. So subjective though. A lot of people yeah. will want to count the number of people that came through the door or... Um, number of people that they've provided a, a bed to. But if it's not with a, I guess, and that's why asking your people you serve to give you that constant, to give feedback, evaluate your service and did we make a difference? Is that house we built mm-hmm. appropriate? Um, you know, making sure that they are part of the design process. We actually asked, um, we've got two group homes of older women and go back to our Why Homes project. We had the architect team meet with that group of women multiple times, review their feedback, take back designs and say, would you live here? Is this what we heard? You have to make sure your client and who you're serving is at the centre of that design, whether that's, you know, a child in our early learning centre a woman in our leadership program or somebody who's going to live in our homes? If you were to pick something, I don't know how far your planning goes, but I just spoke to someone, um, James, uh, Jim Lynch from Zelandia, and they have a 500-year plan. So <laughs> I'm sorry, a 300-year plan. Uh, no, actually, it was a 500-year plan. So I don't know if anyone has a plan that long. Um but if you were to look into the future and maybe even consider the next generation for, for to say that YWCA Canberra was successful in its mission, what would that look like? That we possibly wouldn't be needed. That I think when we look at the people who we choose to serve, so obviously when this organisation was established, it recognised the inequality that women face. I think we need to start thinking about uh, society is starting to explore those gender binaries and maybe we need to shift. 
I'm, I'm not quite sure where we will be positioning gender. I hope we start unpacking it. It's a construct made. I think we're starting to see those really challenging conversations occur. There's still some things that I personally find very hurtful when I see this conversation um, about people's attitudes to those um, structured gendered norms. I think as an organisation, as we evolve, we need to be open that uh, gender will continue to evolve as society starts to become more progressive and understand that maybe no binaries. That would change your name, wouldn't it? It would change our name. <laughs> and we actually kind of had a bit of a laugh about that at our planning day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact that you had an actual class around they lead. Yes. I imagine that's probably one of the first in, you know, in the world probably around this leadership. It, it would be interesting to see how that actually impacts your mission, which is based around women, if you are considering more non-binary genders. Yeah, and we, we've opened all of our leadership programs to that. And that's that, that again came from client feedback. So the uh, wonderful youth engagement team were working with a group of LGBTIQ uh, young leaders down in um, down in a part of Canberra, South Canberra, and one of them said to their youth worker that they weren't able to attend their formal, their prom, with how they chose to dress to celebrate and with their partner because it wasn't a heterosexual relationship. And they said that's, you know, they listened and said, well, what do you, what would you like to do about it? And they said, brought it to the leadership group and they said, can we have our own prom? And now we've had our sixth prom and it is led by this group of young people and it's a beautiful celebration. And that was that same group that said, why can't we have our own leadership conference? Yeah, interesting. So it's actually, that, that came from young people. Mm. <laughs> so I think, I think as an organisation we've opened to that and will continue to uh, not only embrace that but support their leadership <laughs> on that journey. And as the organisation evolves, you don't know yet, do yeah, you? That's right. Yeah, yeah. interesting. I think it's a, a certainly a time where there's more conversations and mm. openness about about these, but mm. it does impact long organisations with the word woman. Yes. In the name. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's something that we're open to, and we've had that started that discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we've had some really interesting conversations already, and I, I imagine we could explore this for a lot longer, but <laughs> I'm conscious of time. Francis, in the work that you're doing right now in any of those things, uh, what's the best way for our listeners to support you or to, to get in touch? Uh, our website, YWCA Canberra. Um, we've got lots of information there um, and any of the links because of the breadth of our work. Um, so there's a standalone website for She Leads. There's a standalone website for our next door older women's homelessness, but it's all linked through the main website. And I'm happy to talk to people about our work, but also anybody who's listening to this and goes, wow, that systems leadership I'm in, I think we could work together. <laughs> really, really love to hear from people. Okay. Well, so LinkedIn would be probably the best LinkedIn way. would be great. Yeah, perfect. Okay. We'll make sure we put those links into the show notes. And I imagine there's probably some people that may be interested in knowing more about the They Lead program as well. Absolutely. Because it's, it's probably 
um, not many options out in the world right now when people want to know more about these types of, of programs. So, Francis, thank you for the work that you do with your organization, your team does for right now mostly women, but obviously that um, that that gender bias is not necessarily going to be there forever. And um, you're obviously helping people that are, are identifying as non-binary as well. The, the challenges that you have to face as a leader to just get basic housing for women that may be homeless, for, for circumstances that might be outside of their control, mm-hmm. and for you know, allowing for childcare and other opportunities for, for women in general so that they can have equal access and equal opportunities is something that I don't think we can underestimate the value of that for, for individual and family lives yeah. as a whole. Yeah. And how that impacts the community is probably just as significant. So thank you for that work and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me on, Tammy. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT and Plain English segment is, is it time for my organization to upgrade to Windows 11? Windows 11 is a new operating system that Microsoft first released to the public in October 2021. It has a new design and some new functionalities, especially around cybersecurity. So, should you go ahead and accept the free upgrade? For most organizations right now, I would say no. Windows 10 is a solid operating system that will be supported until 2025. The main issues you may have with Windows 11 now is that it does require higher minimum requirements for your devices. So if your asset register is full of older PCs and laptops, beware, as this upgrade could impact things like the processing speed. Other issues that have been reported have to do with compatibility with other applications, especially if you're self-hosting them yourself. The only orgs that may be safe to upgrade to Windows 11 now are those that have done a full device refresh recently and are particularly worried about cybersecurity. Otherwise, I would suggest leaving Windows 11 for a later date. In fact, you're better off ensuring that no device is still on Windows 8.1 as support for that operating system actually ends in January 2023. So there you have it in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just might answer it on the show. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave me a review. To all of you executives with a cause, the world is definitely a better place because of what you and your teams do every day.